Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Hey guys, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to invite up Francesca Canales, is going to come here to uh, come up here to lead us in our scripture reading. Once you get there, Acts chapter 2, you see the verses on the screen, 40 through 47. Once you do, why don't you stand with me to join me this morning in the reading of God's word. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this preserved generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we come to you this morning again here, just back in your presence, recognizing your presence here with us, and, and uh, seeking God to, to really just be on the same wavelength with you this morning, to receive what you want to give us, Lord, to hear what you want to say to us, to see what you want to show us. God, we're here to be made into your likeness. It's the work of your spirit. That's what you've signed us up for. We're just here, God, for you and what you want to do. So I surrender my sermon to you. I surrender our time now of Bible study to that end. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fall and fill our, our hearts and minds in this time, that you would speak to us, and that you would shape us. Bless our time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, this morning we are wrapping up what has been a five-week series here in the month of January. Next week we're jumping into the book of Ephesians. Going to be going on a journey through the book of Ephesians for a few months. Really excited about that. But here for the month of January, we have been walking through this series that we've entitled All Things New. Just perfect around the start of a new year to be reminded of this aspect of Jesus and this aspect of his work in our lives and in the world. Uh, The big premise of this series is all the ways that Jesus wants to lead us out of the same old, same old brokenness and patterns and into the new. Uh, God is all about the new. He's all about taking things that have become old and making them new again. He loves to do that. He loves to see fresh life blossom where it seemed impossible. And he does that for us. He's doing that in our lives. He's doing that in our church. We believe that he's been up to that in this series, is just making some things new. And so we've just been exploring all the ways that he does this, like all the new things that God does, all of them, all things new. Uh, And here's what we've looked at so far. For the past four weeks, we've covered these four things that God does new. He leads us into a new year. That was the first week. We looked at that on actually January 1st, the first day of this year. 
The following week, we looked at the new covenant, just phenomenal, the beauty of what God has accomplished in Christ for us as people through this new covenant and partnership and relationship with God. We saw that that new covenant leads us to be a new us. You become a new you. Jesus doesn't come to simply bring some additions and um, updates to your life. He comes to renovate you completely. The Bible says that if anyone is in Jesus, has come to Jesus, the Bible says this, that he is now a new creation. Despite what, how old you may feel still, there's sometimes those old sin patterns and that old you kind of rears its head, or maybe often <laughs> you look at it in the mirror. The truth of the gospel is, you, you, listen, apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus, you would be who you are. But in Jesus, you're not who you are apart from him. In Jesus, you're not who you would be apart from him. You're a new creation. You're who he says you are. And so we talked about that, living as a new creation in Christ with a new heart, a new mind, and even a new nature. Uh, and then last week, we talked about the collective aspect of this, that God makes us new people individually, but God is, also, God is up to so much more than just changing us individually. He, he's also up to doing a work in us collectively. He makes us a new people as a community. That's what we talked about last week, how we were once not a people. But we are now the people of God, a whole new humanity in him. The word for this is the church. We're his people. And so we've covered a lot of stuff here, a lot of ways that Jesus does new things in our lives. And so I'm excited this morning to end out with a final topic. And if you'd like to take notes, go ahead and jot this down. Today we want to look at the ways that Jesus leads us into a new normal. A new normal. A new normal. That's what we see displayed here in the verses that we just read in Acts chapter 2. We have the early church. We actually have the first church ever here in Acts chapter 2. And what do we see them doing? We see them living out a whole new normal way of life. Listen again. A whole new normal way of life that Jesus has established for them, specifically through the leadership of of the 12 disciples, of his followers. Um, this is really much of, you could say, what Jesus was up to, especially during those last three years of his life when he was investing in and developing his disciples. I mean, these were the guys that were going to be the foundation of the church movement. Everything was going to be built on their leadership. And so Jesus had a lot of character formation and development to do. When you look at these guys, they're not, you know, we, we've stained glass them, you know, but they are, they are stained dudes. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, these are not, like, these are the kind of guys that you're like, hey, this is my team. Maybe you felt this way. Like, if you played sports before, you're like, all right, this is my team. We got some work to do. All right. It's one of those things. Like, winning is going to be a little challenging, but this is what Jesus does. He takes nobodies and he does supernatural things through them. And you look at those three years of Jesus' investment into them, and I think you could really summarize it under this idea of a new normal. Much of Jesus' discipleship to his followers, his, his first disciples, the 12, involved leading or bringing his disciples out of their old normal into his new normal. Does this make sense? You see this a lot. Jesus will often... Um, 
something will happen with the disciples. We just studied the Gospel of Mark last year. Didn't we see this over and over again? We're like, the disciples, has, they have their own like default, natural, and normal way of thinking and approaching life and all sorts of things in life. And what will, what will happen is they'll assume normal to Jesus. Like, yeah, Jesus, this is totally normal to want to bring down fire from heaven upon these guys, right? Jesus, it's totally normal, right, for me to try to leverage my position as a disciple for my own selfish gain, right? That's normal, isn't it? And, and this happens all the time where like some sort of like broken, sinful, normal thought will, will sort of come to the surface and Jesus will highlight it. He'll examine how they're thinking about leadership, how they're thinking about their enemies, how they're thinking about God and the law and sinners. I mean, all sorts of things. And he'll contrast it with the norms of the kingdom, with the norms of God. These are sort of assumed, this is normal, right? To think this way, to live this way, to approach life this way. And Jesus will contrast their normal with the norms of the kingdom of God. And one of the most consistent places that you see Jesus doing this is in the Sermon on the Mount. I would encourage you, if you haven't lately, I'll just say lately, and that might be never, but that's okay, even if it's just lately. If you haven't gotten into Matthew 5 through 7, for me, I want to keep this as like a regular part of my reading and spiritual nourishment as a Christian, because at the end of the day, like, we're church people, you know, we're Bible people, but the the heart of all that is we're Jesus people. We're Jesus people. And, And Matthew 5 through 7 is the clearest description of who Jesus is and what his normal is. Are you with me? Like when you read the Sermon on the Mount, what you have is Jesus establishing, some have called the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus's kingdom manifesto. I love that. You know, a manifesto that represents the culture of some kingdom or some, or some thought group. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Like, so if anybody's ever like, man, those Christians, the way they act, they act this way. You know, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll be like, I know. Do you know what I mean? I know, but have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Because most of the time what's wrong with Christianity, it, it's, it's not so much that Je- the problem isn't Jesus. It's usually Christians that have wandered away from following him in some form. Are, are, you know what I'm saying? And so like, I, I'm like to be like, go to the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll really get the gist of who Jesus is. And listen, you'll get what normal Christianity no, – I'm not talking about religious Christianity, churchy Christianity. I'm talking about normal Christianity – looks like Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5 through 7 to a community of people that had their own norms. And so this is like Jesus's um, main method of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He'll often begin a teaching on a topic with this phrase. He'll say, you have heard it said, aka, this is the cultural norm, right? This is how people have, have always said and thought about this topic, whether sexuality or conflict or resolution or the law or God, his kingdom. I mean, just go through the whole list. You have heard it said to think this way and approach life this way. But I say to you, don't assume that your normal is God's normal. Don't assume that the way that we're approaching life naturally and with our defaults is normal. Um, and, and this is what Jesus was seeking to lead his people to experience. Uh, And I want to say, too, this is what discipleship to Jesus is all about. Discipleship to Jesus is about this. It's about learning his normals. That's what this is. It's about coming to him and saying, Jesus, teach me how to be your follower. I mean, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to 
surrender, in a sense, what we think and how we want to live to what he says is the best life and to what he says represents the kingdom. Now, let's stop for a second and just think about the real challenges that we face with this. I mean, I don't think there's a Christian in this room that would sit here and say, I don't want to live the way of Jesus. Like, in, your, in the, the truest part of your heart, if, if your heart is new in Christ, there, there's a longing and a desire there to be like, I don't want to settle for my normal. I want his normal. You know what I mean? Like, I want to, I want to embody the norms of the kingdom. Uh, the challenge of, with this, and we all know this, is really how easy it is and how natural it is to default to our own normal. That's the, at the end of the day, that's the challenge. We know this, right? Like, we all live within our own frameworks, and we tend to default to these frameworks of what's normal. It's just normal. Like, have you ever been to another country before you realize this, don't you? You go to another country, and you don't realize how defaulted you are to your normal until you experience someone else's normal, and you get this thing called culture shock. I remember going to Morocco, Africa at 19 years old. It was Brittany and I's first date on a missions trip. Ayo, missions trip date. Okay. In Morocco, one of the things that we had in preparation for, I don't encourage mission trip dating, by the way, but one of the things they do to prepare you for your missions trips, um, this is a helpful part of any sort of international um, evangelism, is, is really seeking to understand the context that you're going to so that your culture doesn't become too much of a stumbling block. Does that make sense to theirs? So like one of the things that they said is like in Morocco, here's the narrative about Americans. They talk really loud and they eat really fast. That's, that's American culture. Everywhere you go, people are shouting. Really, how long? Five minutes till I can be seated? Because everyone's in and out, shouting loud. We sit down, we're in and out. That's, I love our culture. That's our culture. And Moroccan culture is completely different. It's a culture of honor and respect. You're, you're much more considerate about how loud you are in public. This is a pet peeve of mine. When you answer that FaceTime call in the coffee shop that's quiet, we can hear your conversation. Come on, headphones. Okay, sorry. That was not on my notes. Sorry. In Morocco, it's, it's a culture of honor, and, and the meals are not something to rush through. I mean, it's very common in Morocco to sit down at the table. This is connected to even Middle Eastern culture, and sit there, and you're on the floor on pillows around a table for three to four hours. That, that's, where, that's actually where the heart of life is found, is around that table. So we're, we're, we're prepped for that, and we're also prepped for the differences that we're going to experience in Morocco. I remember this. One of the, and there's all sorts of them. One of the most interesting ones was that in Moroccan culture, it's very common for male friends to hold hands when they're making their way downtown, okay? Um, and I'm nothing against that. Like, if any of my homies want to start picking up on that practice, like, I'm cool with it. Like, I'm comfortable. I'll be like, let's go. We're boys. Like, that's totally fine with me. But it's different. Like, if you saw a couple of the homies walking in here today, like, like grass tight, I'm talking finger locked, like, you'd be, you'd be like, that's different. I'm just not, you, that's not a cultural norm. And, and I'm just, I'm saying, in cultural norms, I'm talking about male friends. It's just not a norm to us. We're not used to that sort of practice um, in that way. Now, here's what I want to say to you as I'm describing my adventures to the far land of Morocco. You don't have to go to another country to realize this, that there's more to the world of your own natural norms that you tend to default to. Um, I was thinking about this. Do you, I don't know if you remember this. I remember like the first time as a kid going over my friend or family member's house. You ever remember this? And experiencing someone else's home dynamic for the first time. And you're just kind of like, whoa. 
you're thinking to yourself, like, this is, this is different. Like, I would never talk to my parents like that. <laughs> or, like, we don't do meals like that. And you're kind of like, this, this is weird. And then you're like, or am I weird? Is this normal? Is my family weird? You don't know, but you're just, all you know is this. This is different. This is different, okay? I'm describing that experience growing up, but there's another arena that this happens in a lot too. It's this, this little covenant called marriage, okay? Marriage. I would define marriage. Here's how I would define marriage this morning. Marriage is a collision and collaboration of two normals. At first, I had the word collision because it's honest. It's a collision of two normals. And then I'm like, maybe I'll change it to collaboration. It's a little bit more optimistic. But if you're married, you know it's both, okay? It's collaboration via collision, okay? That's what it is. Uh, That's marriage. Uh, A man shall leave the norms of his father and mother and be joined to the norms of his wife's family. I mean, this is really what you're getting into. Let me say, this is why it's really important to know who you're marrying before you marry them. This is free advice, okay? You can read the Bible for this too, but it's good to know what's normal. And, and, and marriage is really a question of like, okay, how much am I willing to endure of someone else's normal? We should say of someone else's abnormal. How much am I willing? When you get married, you notice this, that it's, it's the collision and colli- learning to collaborate between two normals. Uh, there's two different normals. When two people get together, there's, e- even if they're both healthy, they're, they're still different. Are you with me? There, there's different normals of conflict. There's different normals of how we manage or don't manage money. There's different normals, normals of how we do meals and how we do family. There's different normals. This, is, this was a big one for Britt and I. A different normals with mornings and evenings. That's it. Everybody's got their own normal routine to that. Like, and I won't get into that. Babe's giving, she's like, I love how I just called her by babe as her first name, but um, it's totally normal in my house to do that, okay? Here's a big one. When we got married, I learned that um, from the Manning family to the Lending family, there was two different normals. How do I say this? Of like gas refueling protocol. You know what I'm saying? So Brittany grew up in a home where, like, we're not going we're, to, we're, if your gas tank's that quarter tank, you're on empty. I grew up with a normal, here's, this is, by the way, how many of you guys are like that? Quarter tank, you're on empty. Let me just say, by the way, you are normal, okay? That is normal. <laughs> For me growing up, I love how I say growing up as if I'm not still doing the same stuff, but it's time to fill the gas tank when you hear the beep, and you're like, oh, Oh, one mile to empty. Okay. There's a gas station 10 miles away. Good thing. I think I can coast. I've done that on several occasions in my early 20s, I promise. Um, Three separate occasions, I remember. Specifically, like my current gas station that I go to there off Glades, I remember coasting by praying a prayer in neutral. Lord, let me have enough momentum here. And I had to get, I was coming west on Glade, so I had to make, I had to have enough momentum to make that turn across incoming traffic. And I, by the grace of the Lord, he carried me, all right? I looked back, and there was one pair of footprints there, one pair of skid marks on the road, and he got me across the road into the gas station. Okay, enough of me. Now, here's what you learn about this truth, that there's There's our own framework of normal, and we tend to default to our own. Here's what you learn about marriage and any relationship. This is important. 
you learn that there's more to life than what's normal to you. And if you want a relationship to succeed, if you want it to work, you have to think about their norms as well. Most marriages don't last. Most relationships fail because one party's not considering what's normal for the other. And they're just assuming that their normal is what? Everyone's normal. Now, let me say this, that the same is partly true in relationship with God. The same is partly true in relationship with God. Uh, this same statement can apply to relationship with God in the sense that, as Jesus is describing his new normal, as Jesus leads us out of our old into his new, uh, it, it applies to this because we've got to consider that, you know, maybe just start here. Consider today that there may be more to your relationship with God than what you've been used to. Just stop and sit in that for a second. Is that possible? Is it possible that you haven't reached the end of what you know about God and following him? Is it possible that there's more to God than your normal? Is that possible? Well, it's got to be if we're going to follow him. And so that's why it's similar to relationship and marriage, because if you want it to work, you've got to think beyond just your normal. But, but here's how it's not like a marriage. Here's how discipleship to Jesus is actually, in some ways, nothing like that at all. Um, relationship with God and discipleship to Jesus is not a relationship where me and Jesus are learning to coexist with each other. Okay. Let me put up that graphic again. This is not relationship with Jesus. There's certainly a collision of normals, but Jesus and me don't learn to collaborate. That's not what this is about. The Christian faith is not you coming to Jesus saying, hey, I think I could add you to my life. I, think, I like how you look on my resume as a person who's single. You know, I like, I like how, how, how your morals guide my life. Jesus, I, I like the cross. I really like that concept of being forgiven of my sin. But Jesus, if this is going to work, you've got to collaborate with me. You've got to coexist with me. You've got to compromise and meet me somewhere in the middle. And I want to just say today, whatever we have settled for, I'm not sure, but nothing could be further from biblical Christianity. Nothing. The biblical concept of following Jesus is not that Jesus collaborates with your normal, but he transforms your normal. It's not come to Jesus, collide and collaborate. It's do not be conformed to this world. Here's the call, but be transformed by how you think about normal. Be transformed that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Jesus is not interested in collaboration. He's interested in transformation, changing us. He, he wants us to look different to the world around us. He wants there to be a culture shock when non-believers come in contact with the community of Solace Church. Like, what is this culture? I'm not used to. It's the culture of the kingdom. That's what he has in mind. Uh, and let me say this. This is what Jesus says to us. You see this often all throughout the Gospels. Anytime someone is coming to follow Jesus and they have interest in being his disciple, they say, I want to be a Christian. And oftentimes what will happen is people will come to Jesus with that desire, but it's a half-hearted desire. It's Jesus, I'll follow you, but, are you with me? I'll follow you if I can fill in the blank. Sort of these conditions. And Jesus, he doesn't like tolerate it at all. At, at times he seems mean when a guy's like, can I go back and bury my dead father? He's like, no, 
let the dead bury. I mean, he's very radical with it. The heart of Jesus doing this, whether it's the rich young ruler or any other person, is Luke 9.23, where Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny what's normal. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the invitation of discipleship. And this is what we see displayed here in Acts chapter 2, in those verses we read. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, is a beautiful display of a new normal. That's what we see here in Acts 2. We see, listen, do you know what Acts 2 is, the verses we read? Um, it's the first church ever. It's really beautiful. The first pure community of Jesus. It's at Pentecost, an incredible moment in history. The church is birthed there at Pentecost. The contrast is, of course, the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the law is given at Mount Sinai. And when the law is given, the Bible tells us that 3,000 people die. At Pentecost in Acts 2, when the Spirit of God is given, what did we read? 3,000 people lived. 3,000 people were born again. Why? Because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And that's what's happening here. The Spirit is giving life, and a church is birthed. And, and this community is displaying, as a new people, following the new norms of Jesus, they're displaying to the world what it actually looks like to follow him. That's what we, that's what we see here in this first church. Now, this community of people that we're, we're going to look back at in a second, that we just read about, you know, it's the Church of Acts, right? The Church of Acts. Man, if we could just be more like the Church of Acts. This is such a common mindset. And I think in some sense, yes, of course, this is the biblical purest form. I mean, you, you want to know anything, see it in its original state. So there's, there's truth to that. One of the biggest mistakes that we make with the church in Acts is we elevate these people to a level that God doesn't. We elevate the Christian faith in the book of Acts to a level that we'll often be like, those are, listen, like I'm a Christian, but I'm not like an Acts Christian. Like the book of Acts Christian, those are radical Christians. They're like opening up each other's homes for each other. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're, get this, they're prioritizing their entire lives around Jesus. Radical. This is normal Christianity. Like, here's an illustration. Remember two weeks ago I was railing on cold plunging? Some of you? So I've gotten into cold plunging. I was railing on pickleball, too, and then I ended up at a pickleball tournament. So, you know, poetic justice, I guess. But um, great health benefits. Um, it's expensive to buy the ice, so thankfully my chiropractor has a, has a cold plunge. And so I've been, you know, getting used to the temperature and the benefits it has. And, you know, more and more that I'm doing it, the lower the temp goes, the longer I'm in the, the little bath. Um, the hardest is when the kids are just around it staring at me while I'm in it. I'm just like, okay, kids, this isn't comfortable for daddy. Can we go inside? Okay. Um, the other day, I, we, we, the whole family was at the chiropractor. I was doing a cold plunge. I came out of the water, and it was the coldest I'd ever done. It was like 42 degrees, which for you, if you're like, that's nothing, whatever. I'm from Michigan. It's okay. Um, it was, I'm from Florida, okay? That was the coldest water I've ever been in. And afterwards, I grabbed a, a bottle of room temperature water, and it was like, it felt like it had been in the microwave. I'm like, why does this guy keep his water so hot, you know? 
And then like I grabbed, Brittany's like, she touched my arm. She's like, you're freezing. I grabbed her arm and she felt like a million degrees. I was like, oh my goodness. Now I want you to think for a second where I'm getting at with this. It wasn't that Brittany was so hot. It's just that I was so cold. It's like when my kids are like, dad, you're so tall. It's like, I'm not so tall. It's just that you're so small, right? And I wonder how often when we look at the book of Acts and we see Christians in the first century, I wonder how much of it is them being radical and really how much of it is just the fact that we've settled for something that's not biblical. So we're like, they're just so on fire. Are they or are we just so lukewarm? Or are we just so comfortable in what's become normal and we've learned to live with it and we've all tolerated it and anytime someone comes in and shakes things up a little bit, we quench that, we're like, stop that. We like this. We love normal, don't we? We love that temperature. We love being at a place that we can control. And this just doesn't work as followers of Jesus. It certainly doesn't work if we're hungering for God to move in a special way in and through our lives. What Christianity is marked by, by throughout history is not extraordinary, remarkable people who have some special gifting and power in and of themselves that made them worthy for God to touch them and use them. It's just marked by hungry people who hunger and thirst for God more than anything else and say, God, we want what you want more than what we want. And God, we're willing to allow you to turn up the temperature and maybe expose if we've gotten lukewarm in some ways. The church in Acts is not radical Christianity. It's normal Christianity. It's what God calls us all to. Can we look at a couple things that should be normal in our lives as a community? Write this down. We should have the same normal priority that this church does. This church is born, and they, they automatically develop a whole new way to prioritize and filter their lives. It tells us in Acts 2.42 that they have this new normal priority. It says that this church continues steadfastly. They devoted themselves to, on the regular, day-to-day, week-to-week, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's the scripture, the word of God, in fellowship, community, in breaking of bread, that speaks of the Lord's table, it could speak of hospitality, sharing the table, doing life together, and in prayer. This church is saved from one way to prioritize and orient their lives to a whole new, whole new way to prioritize their lives. Do you see the priority? See how radical this looks? This is normal. Jesus saved me, think about this, to center my life around following him with other Christians. Jesus saved me not to be some part of my life. But so the way that I think about it, it's like Jesus didn't save me to be a, a drawer in the dresser of my life. He saved me to be the whole thing, the dresser that everything else fits into. And this is what we see displayed here in this church. This is what Jesus saved them and saves us to. He loves us enough to save us to right priorities. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you really love someone, you will help them come out of broken priorities. You ever had someone do that for you? You ever had jacked up priorities, by the way? And you're like, why is my life out of sorts? Why isn't, why isn't anything connecting? And you just have to look at the arrangement of your life. Some of us, we orient our lives around dysfunction and we wonder where God is. 
You have to, listen, at the end of the day, it's not, it's God. Am I prioritizing my life around you? This is what Jesus saves us to. Matthew 6, Jesus is like, here's the difference between a pagan and a believer. The things of the world are what the Gentiles seek. That's before Jesus, your whole life is about you and what you can get and what you can accomplish and what you want and what you love and, and you, you're at the center of it. When you come to Jesus, you realize, I don't need to strive in life. I have a heavenly father that takes care of everything that I need. He took care of my own sin on the cross. And now I'm someone that seeks first, first, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else just kind of falls into place. In the words of C.S. Lewis, if you put heaven first, you'll get earth thrown in is what he says. Putting first things first. In a practical sense, this is what Jesus calls us to. He reorients, listen, he reorients our lives. As a Christian, here's what's happened to you. Your life has been reoriented around your initial design. As humans, we were designed to function with God at the center of our lives, to, to have him at the center. Um, the fall of man was the decentering of God, or, or even just pushing him out of that, not even like get out of here altogether, but just God step aside. Let me put this first and said. And that's where everything breaks down. Can I tell you why? Because um, God cannot deny himself. That's why. God can't, the Bible says God cannot deny himself. So here's what Colossians 1 says. The Bible says about Jesus that he is before all things. When he's revealed to John, the revelator, in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I am what? The first and the last. He is before all things. And it's in him that all things consist. The, the, the context here is the fact that Jesus is preeminent, that he's before it all. Um, the big idea is that he's first. So, like, this is a theological truth that God can't deny. So, this is, okay, so, like, basic theology would say, you know the, you know the expression that there's nothing God can't do? You ever heard that? What a bunch of hogwash, okay? I just said hogwash. What a bunch of baloney. That's, listen, that is not true. God can't deny him. There's a lot that God can't do because he won't because it's not his character. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. God can't learn anything new. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's that called? God's what? Omniscience. You know, God, you know, God has never been in a conversation and went, you know what I just thought of? It just occurred. Nothing has, I love this, nothing has ever occurred to God. God's never gone, ding, oh, just occurred to me that there's a world to run. He can't learn anything new. Colossians says this about Jesus. He can't be second. He can't. This is his preeminence. So, so when I put Jesus first, when I prioritize my entire life around him, when he's at the center of my life, like this first church, normal Christianity... What I'm doing is I'm worshiping God. I'm coming in alignment with who he is. When you put Jesus first, you're not making him first. Does that make sense? He's always first. You're saying, God, this is true about you. And this is true about how you designed life to work. And this is true about how my relationships with work. My work, everything. Everything flows from you being at the center. Does that make sense? He cannot be second. And when we put him first, we're doing what he saved us to do. So I want you to think about your life this morning. Here's a little, um, I've been getting really designy with my, my slides lately, all right? Working overtime. Um, here's a chart 
represents your life, and I want you to think about the things in your life, and I want you to think specifically about where does Jesus land in your life on the target. I think, I think for most of us, he's not invisible. Like, if, if I looked on at your life, if, if, if we looked on it last week and we observed your life, you know, hopefully there, there's not invisibility of the Lord. But what's very close to that is maybe Jesus is on the periphery, like church and him, it's kind of here. Or maybe you think he's at the center because he's a focal point in your family. So I would define this as like, you, you, you know, you, you try to do your best to kind of spend time in the word. You know, every now and then you do a family devotion. You come to church, you know, twice a month, which is like overachiever for a soulless member, okay? It's a focal point. It's a focal point. It's important. If they don't know now, they will know later, your kids, what's at the center of your life, parents. If they don't know now, they will know later. And even worse, they might not ever know, but they will become who you are. They will prioritize as you do. Not what you say with your mouth, but what you say with your life. When's the last time they found you up early alone with Jesus? Think about this stuff. And, and don't just do this so you can have effects in the next generation. We do it out of hunger for God. But we realize that when we break that order, everything else can sort of fall apart. Think about your life and what does it look like? What, what are some things that it's not that they're not focuses, but maybe they've become central. And it's, it's kind of messing up the system. Here's a little, all I did was took the Target logo and put some words in it, okay? It's not that elaborate. But may this, may this challenge you to think about your life. Normal priority. Normal priority. Amen? Jesus saves us to recenter our lives around what he created us for. Putting him first doesn't make him first, but it's aligning with who he is. Amen to that? Amen to that? All right. Next one, write this down. We're going to go here, normal activity. Normal activity. The church in Acts had a new normal priority. Their lives were no longer centered around anything other than Jesus. Following him, learning his way, and doing it in community was what they were saved to. Then we see normal activity, a new normal spiritual activity in their lives. Before you get flustered, let me unpack this for you, okay? Acts 2.43 says, Then fear came upon every soul. Here's what happened. And many... Wonders and signs were done. I want to point out who it's through, through the apostles. That's there for a reason. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Um, so what this verse is showing us in this early church is what scripture is regularly depicting about God, first and foremost. Understand this about the God of the Bible. Sometimes I don't like saying that, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, okay, who wrote the Bible, all right? God in scripture and in history, specifically history is where you see it the most, is displayed as being both alive and active in the world. This is important. The opposite of this is a theology called deism, which says that God created the world, but in the words of Al Pacino, he's the absentee landlord. Does that make sense? The absentee landlord. It's like, I haven't seen my landlord for a couple of years. And, and, and this is how some people think about God. This is how some Christians operate with God. It's all about their activity. 
And the point of the Bible is not really just what you got to do and what you got to be active about. The point of the Bible is this. God is active. Come have some fun and join him. Come be a part of what he's doing. Come experience his active work in and through your life. Okay? This is how scripture depicts God. He's active. He's active. When the prophets of Baal are trying to do battle with Elijah, he is active and he brings down fire from heaven. He's a God, listen, who works in the world. And check this out. The mystery of the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Get this. God invites you to be an agent through which he can be active. Process that for a second. Talk about an invitation. Sometimes I wonder, if our Christianity is so boring, is it God or is it us? I mean, what invitation is that? God is active in the world, and the gospel says even, listen, whoever you are, come to Jesus, and through him, he fills you with his spirit. And he wants to use you as his agent of activity by his spirit in the world. Now, this is where this kind of gets kind of confusing. Like, what's the nature of that? How supernatural is that? Anybody ever have any questions about that? I'm sure we all have. You read Acts, you're like, is this normal Christianity? I mean, wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. Now, let me give you some big words um, to kind of unpack some of this stuff. Uh, in, in the theological circles, in church circles, in doctrinal circles, uh, there, there's a very common, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ that hold this uh, position about a verse like this, and it's called apostolic cessationism. Apostolic cessationism is the doctrine or the, the conviction that essentially the activity of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and in the early church was unique to the apostles. That's, that's the conviction. And, and um, so the word cessationism, it just comes from the phrase to cease. Um, and that's largely rooted in 1 Corinthians 13, which says that whether there are tongues, that's a supernatural manifestation of the Spirit, that those things are going to cease. It doesn't say it's going to cease after the first century. It just says it's going to cease. And uh, this might even be your position. And, and obviously here at Solus, this is not a... Remember that we, we did that qualifier a while back about doctrinal differences. Um, this would not be a, an, an issue of of division for us, okay? If you feel this way, and if you're really passionate about the scriptures, and, and I get why a lot of people land here, and a lot of times it's not because of good theology. It's because of bad experience. Do you know what I'm saying? And you're like, if that's the Lord, I, I, I ain't about that. If that's the Holy Spirit, and, that, and that's what can happen with some people. And, and there's a lot of people, even in the Bible, people are misrepresenting God by the Spirit, in the name of the Spirit. And, and there's, there's healthy concern to go, well, how do... The Holy Spirit is inspiring you to contradict God's word? You with me? So there can be this sense of like, what's going on there? That doesn't seem characteristic of the Spirit. So there is some danger, maybe, to this. I think I would actually say there's been great harm in a lot of ways done in the name of the Holy Spirit. Prophetic words that were not from the Lord. Inclinations and leanings. The Lord is leading me. It's like, well, if you're making that decision by yourself without community, it might not be the Lord. So you're following me, okay? I'm kind of ranting, but you get the idea. And so a lot of times what we do is we go, because of my bad experience, I think I'm just going to camp out here because this is comfortable. (laughs) It just feels good to say the Holy Spirit stopped doing crazy stuff through people in the first century, and that's now that we have the Bible, we don't need the Spirit in that way anymore. Um, And the problem with this, to me, is just biblical hermeneutics. Like studying the Bible, you can't land here. I won't even share about my own personal experience with the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll just say what I've read about in Scripture. 
Um, I, I will say this. When it comes to the wonders and signs that are being done through the apostles, I do believe that the Bible teaches that there was something unique that God was doing. Okay, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says that a true apostle is confirmed through wonders and signs. This is, this is uh, the trend throughout history. Um, Jesus, you've heard of him? He's, he was pretty good. He confirmed his message with wonder and signs. Elisha and Elijah confirmed their message with wonders and signs, okay? Um, Moses, that was the whole thing, right? About to do sign battle with these Egyptians. Let's go. That's Moses. So, so God does throughout history, according to his own will and purpose, at times when he desires, he works through unique groups of people in his own way for his own purpose. Let me say this, not everyone. Not Isaiah. I, was Isaiah any less a prophet than Elijah? No. But this seems to be one of the ways that God works. So I do believe that the apostles were walking in some unique early church blessing that God had for them. But when I study the Bible and I read the New Testament, I can't be left with the conclusion that it was only them that God did supernatural, awesome things through. In fact, if you go back in Peter's sermon, Peter is preaching from the, from the book of Joel, and he says this about the last days which, of which we're in. You know my conviction on that. God says, on my men servants and on my maid servants, look at what he says, just, just stop for a second and digest this. I will pour out my spirit. Pour out my spirit in the last days. This is a promise because back then, God's spirit was only poured out on certain people for a certain time frame with a certain measure. But we're not in the old covenant anymore. We're in the new covenant where God pours out his spirit on his sons and daughters. And he says that as my spirit is poured out, they shall prophesy by the Spirit speaking forth God's word. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. I believe this is referring to the apocalyptic wrap-up of the earth that's to come. This is just some nice Sunday morning stuff for you. The sun shall be turned into darkness. Just had a baby dedication. Now we're reading that the moon will be turned into blood, okay? Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. I wanted to read that whole thing to point out that the events described there are end times events in the last days of which we're a part of, where God promises it's in that context, in that time frame, that God is going to pour out his spirit upon all, all people. So here, here's what I would say. As opposed to apostolic cessationism, I would say um, that I would hold the position of, <laughs> I made up a word, and it's a lot of ism, so just follow me. I would hold the position of apostolic Confirmationism. So there were certain wonders and signs done to confirm the message of the apostles. But scripture leads me to hold tightly to spiritual continuationism, which is this idea that the work of the Spirit has not ceased in the first century. Where would we be without the active work of the Holy Spirit in and through God's people? We'd be lost. God, and I don't just mean in a general way, because we know, I mean, everybody agrees that the Spirit is still doing the greatest miracle of all today, saving people. He's still doing that. But when you read 1 Corinthians 12 especially, Paul's writing to a church, and he's like, guys, this is a church. Let's just say this. The church at Corinth was not a community of extraordinary Christians. 
Like you got First Corinthians is like like barely PG thirteen, maybe R rated. This church is gnarly, gnarly. They they are they're off their rocker. They're off the rails, steeped in immorality and carnality. And one of their biggest issues was listen, as a community filled with the Holy Spirit, they were all out of out of whack. And Paul's like. Concerning spiritual manifestations, I, I don't want you to be ignorant. That, that's where this church was. That's one of the biggest issues that we can find ourselves in. Is we're foreign to the person of the Holy Spirit. We don't know him. So we're just trying to do Christianity on our own. And we're stuck in some level of pseudo-biblical Christianity. And I just want to say, like, Jesus has water for your thirsty soul. He, he has come to pour out his spirit upon you for you to be filled with him to accomplish his purposes in your life and day. That's what this is about. The Holy Spirit is not, I love this R.A. Torrey quote. Me and Matthew were chatting about this last week at coffee. R.A. Torrey says this about the Holy Spirit. If, if we think of the Holy Spirit only as an impersonal power or influence, then our thought will constantly be, how can I get, of and get a hold of and use the Holy Spirit? How do we get some more of that power from the... But if we think of him in the biblical way as a divine person, infinitely wise, infinitely tender, infinitely holy, then our thought will constantly be, I love this, how can the Holy Spirit get hold of and use me? Like, this is the shift here. Okay, the context here is normal activity. God is active in the world by his spirit. The question is, are we the kind of people that are saying, here am I, Lord? Just use me, God. Holy Spirit, fill me. Spirit, fill me. Here's the point of Paul in 1 Corinthians. Because you love people around me enough to tell me stuff about them for them, you want to use me to pray for them. There's an encouragement you've put in my heart for them. That doesn't come from me. That comes from me being filled with the Spirit. I wish I had so much more time to do a 20-week series on this, but here's three things I would say, three final things about this. When it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, this is all 1 Corinthians 12 all the way through 14. Love is the motive. This is what this is rooted in. At the end of the day, it's not about how can I become, it's like, God, if you, you love people so much, and I want to just be aligned with your love, and I love you. This is not about me feeling better about myself because I have a tingling in my bones. You, you with me? This is just about you loving people, and so if you want to, by your spirit, lead me to say something to them, to encourage them, if you want me to lay hands and pray over them and you're going to heal them, this isn't about me. This is about you. The Holy Spirit just wants to make much of Jesus. So just love through me. It's about love. Love is the motive here. Desire is the command. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Maybe that's all you need this morning is like a renewed desire for the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in and through your life. You just start going, God, I want more of you. He's like, perfect. I'll give you more of me. I'll give you more than you want of me. Desire is the command. Wisdom's the key. Biblical wisdom, discernment is the key. How are we doing on points? We're doing fine. We're doing fine. We're doing fine, right? Every, yeah. Every nod? Yeah. Okay. Write this down. Normal generosity. We're wrapping up here. Normal generosity. That one required a little bit more. Normal generosity. Yeah, we see the church in Acts. We see... We see uh, the apostles uniquely empowered by the Spirit for a special time, but then we see the Spirit continue to use people all throughout Acts. Uh, that's what I pray for our church. I pray we'd be a community accustomed, just accustomed and used to the Spirit speaking to us, leading us. 
guiding us. It's normal. Normal generosity. Look at this church. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods, and they divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, this is a different culture, a different moment in history, a different economic dynamic, socioeconomic dynamic as well. But, but what you see in the church here is something that translates to us as the church in this age. It was a, a, an approach to life and community. Listen closely. This is normal Christianity. You approach your life, you approach community, and you approach your stuff with open hands. It's a posture. It's a posture that I think is best echoed by David when he's blessing the construction project of the temple. Right before he passed away, David, King David said, Now our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. I love David said this, but who am I and who are my people? If they're about to build the Lord a temple, that we should be able to give as generously as this. Look what they say. Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Do you see this heart posture? So like when I bring my, my tithe or my offering to the Lord through the church, I'm not saying, God, you've been good to me, so I'm going to give you this. Here you go, Lord. You know, you know what the word is, is in the Old Testament? The word that's used for tithe is, is not the word give your tithe. It's the word bring your tithe. Because you're just saying, Lord, here, I'm bringing it. This is yours. Here, God. What you're recognizing is everything I have. What can I give except what I've received, right? There's no, this is the Christian. There's nothing I have that I have not received from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, not my own ingenuity and smarts. Where did that breath in my lungs came from him? So, so, so normal Christianity is recognizing the heart of this, and it's living my life postured in such a way that I just say, God, who, who, who can you use me to serve? What have you given me that I can steward well? It's about stewardship, to bless others, to be a blessing to people. What, what have you given me? What's in my hand? It might be my time. It might be my listening ear. Whatever it is, it's, at the end of the day, it's all ministry. It's just ministry. This is ministry. I, uh, Warren Wearsby says it best. Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. We're just the channels. We're like, here we are. Hi. I'm not a reservoir that, that starts and ends with myself. I'm a channel. God's the source. He wants us to be a blessing. Amen? All right, we're almost there. I can see the finish line. It's really close. Look at this. Normal hospitality. Write this one down. Normal hospitality. This one comes with a, a challenge for the month. Look at this church. This is normal. This is so normal. I want to I point out, this is before they have a small groups pastor in the church. You know what small groups pastors are? A 21, 21st century invention to get Christians doing what they should have naturally been doing all along. This is, this is normal. Look, they're continuing daily with one accord in the temple. They're gathering. And then they're breaking bread from house to house. They didn't sign up for groups. You know what I'm saying? Okay, you're going to... Got to get in community. All right, when does the group start? Got to sign up if I'm going to be a Christian. Hopefully they put me somewhere I like. Okay, what night of the week? No, nah, I can't do that. I play pickleball that night, you know. That's like, okay. Do you see what the love of God does when a church encounters it? It just leads us to love each other and actually, listen, function as a family. This is what the gospel saves us into, this kind of a life, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. 
here's the good news of the gospel. If you feel lonely today, I want to welcome you to the family. The gospel saves you into a family. And the gospel calls us to receive one another as family. There's more than theology here. There's practice. Jesus, the idea here is um, there is no one more hospitable than God. Isn't he amazing how he welcomes us? He doesn't go, hey, come back later when I clean up, you know. Oh, you again? Oh, my goodness. I thought it was Amazon Prime. It's you. Sheesh. We're back again. He is so much more receptive of us than we deserve. And he's so much more receptive of us than we think. Some of us, the reason why we're distant from God is not because God has rejected us, but we've rejected him and we've rejected ourselves from him. The gospel says, come to me just as you are. I'm opening up my heart and life on the cross saying, come, come near. I'm welcoming you in. And the church exists, the Bible says, to be a city on, the, on a hill modeling the same kind of hospitality to each other. I mean, this kind of a living. Paul says to the church at Rome, receive one another, <laughs> just as Christ has also received you. Do you see this? In fact, it's not even that like you showed up at God's door and he was like, who's out there? Oh, hi, yeah, come in. That's not the idea. He's pursued relationship with you. He's like, do the same with one another. Paul says to the church at Corinth, I love this, Sometimes this is, the Bible has to speak to us. Um, this is a community that Paul rebuked them pretty hard in his first letter because he loved them. And so because they, didn't they took it personally, they didn't trust Paul's motives, so they shut their hearts up to him. They're like, Paul's just loving them. It's like a child, right? When you love them, and they're just like, <laughs> you don't know me, you know? Um, so Paul calls them. He's like, fight the tendency to close your heart. It's so hard. The more your heart is hurt, the harder it is to close your heart. Or the, sorry, the easier it is to just close off. Do you know what I'm saying? And we're living in a cultural moment right now where everyone's closed. Everyone. It's so hard to just do like neighborhood hangs with my neighbors because they pull in their driveway and close the garage behind them. Literally closed off. Like, nope. I mean, it's just, our, it's all of our tendency. This, we kind of, hi, oh. You know, stay there. Don't come too close. It's like, what a, what a bad display of who God is. What an opportunity we have as a church. We, we live in a day and age where one of the greatest idols, I want to say this, I talked to a, there's a guy who was planning a church here in Boca about six years ago, and he was doing a lot of extensive work studying the city of Boca. And he, his denomination, he had to present like a whole vision, it was like a whole thing. And in his findings, he said, out of all of his travels in church planning, he said, Boca is one of the most individual and private environments I've ever been in. And can we say that's maybe South Florida? Like, oh, yeah, okay. Just that, ten it's, it's an idol, by the way. It's an idol of isolation. It's an idol of individualism. Have your, I'm, listen, you're like the pastor today told me I can't have a private life anymore. Oh, my gosh, I have to have people over my house. Find a new, I want to go to those churches where I just go to people's house, you know? <laughs> I'm talking about a tendency to live a closed-off life when you have a God who's been nothing but open to you. And, and maybe you just need to hear the call of Scripture today that just says, open up. 
He's never let you down. Open your heart. Trust him enough to open your heart to someone else in the church. In fact, we even have a challenge for you this month um, for all of February. Here's the challenge. Ready? Here's the challenge. Invite someone that you don't really know in the church over your home or out to a meal. Okay? Just invite someone. Pray about that. It can't be like your cousin. It's like, I haven't seen you in a couple weeks, Bill. Come on, you know. I'm saying. Pray about that. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. Amen?